Everyone, it's good to see everybody. Um, warm in here. My apologies. I'm warm. I don't know if y'all are. Um, my apologies for that. But it's good to be with everyone. Um, uh, starting a series on Galatians, um, four-week series, so short, not a verse by verse in any way, but um, kind of a flip through and try to pick up four significant themes and try to tie in what this book might mean, and especially as it lives in our day-to-day sort of life. So with that, let me um, let me start with a prayer. Lord, come, do yourself to us, be living, be active, be present before us, um, uh, remake us, we would beg, uh, for the sake of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Um, so, to, uh, to start with, what I hope to do is, I always move pretty quick, but move fairly fast, take 10 or 15 minutes and kind of introduce a little bit of the letter, the themes that I hope to sort of tease out. Um, knowing myself, just standing here a few minutes ago, I thought, what am I going to be doing today? And I said, I'm going to be groping for themes. That's what I usually do. Um, first time I sort of climb into a series, usually the last week, that I finally, oh, now I know what I wanted to say these other seven weeks. Um, so unfortunately, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's probably true. But, but here I think, I think I know what I want to sort of get into. Um, Galatians, almost certainly, um, univocally throughout history, it's been accepted, so to speak. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, there's some chairs on that rack. You want to sort of pull those out? Um, this is my funeral, <laughs> dearly beloved. <laughs> We've come to talk about me. So, what was that? So, was that a phone? So, so that's what I thought. That'll be fun to play with if that's happening. So, I'm not sure. So. Um, uh, God, that threw me. Um, this is a letter of Paul, almost certainly. Nobody throughout history, now or then, thought, well, maybe this is partly Paul, one of Paul's disciples, but not really him. I mean, so we can just put that out there. It's no big deal. But it's Paul, and he's writing to, to the church that he started in Galatia. Um, there is some question historically, what does that mean? But we're not going to worry about that. Uh, what is it? We have to figure that out. Thank you, Frank. Here's our audio man. Um, uh, church in Galatians, he just started it, and then very soon after, we don't know how soon, but probably a matter of months, a few months afterwards, uh, something happened, and some other teachers came in, and they started to preach, as he would call it, a gospel, other than the gospel that I taught you. And he's got some really great, it's one of the real earthy letters of Paul. Um, and so if you're kind of into the Bible and reading and all that sort of stuff, it's, it's kind of a fun letter to read because it's short, six chapters. Um, it's got some really great sort of passion behind it. Um, this is a theological, theologically dense letter, but it's a theologically dense letter where Paul is grappling almost in sort of a very visceral, fleshly way, because um, he talks a lot about circumcision, which is a very visceral, fleshly event, and he even makes a lot of puns about that. Um, so it's right there in the Bible, right there in Paul. Um, uh, it really matters to him. He is really charged about this. This is the letter that sort of stands unique to all of his letters, where he doesn't sort of start off in all this sort of florid, nice, flowery, oh, I miss you, this is so great, the times we had together, do you remember that coffee, and da, da, da. he doesn't go through all that, I thank my God every time I remember you, like he does in Philippians, he's not looking back with this great fondness, he sort of launches straight in 
with some really choice sort of words, some vindictive words to him. He's like, how could you? Have you forgotten already? Leading right up to in, in, uh, in, um, in, in the beginning of chapter 3, right in the middle, he keeps sort of backing out. It's a very sort of stream of consciousness. It's not an evenly divided book. You can't sort of say, well, here he's doing this and here he's doing this. You can see the flow. He's like just getting it off his chest. And he comes out and it's like, you fools, you idiots, is what he says. You idiot Galatians, do you not remember? So we sort of wrestle with all that. And so I like, I like that because here's a very earthy, although dense, a very real um, connective letter, which we have to kind of in our own way grapple with. Um, and so it's... Uh, uh, not surprisingly, then, it was a huge letter um, to, uh, to all the reformers, in particular Calvin and Luther. Um, so we start, I start with them a good bit. And Luther, although not technically on Galatians, um, though I'll use a lot of him because he, he wrote two commentaries. It's the only book of the Bible where he wrote two commentaries, in fact. He wrote an early one and a later one. Um, we use the later primarily. But he said this elsewhere on one of the Psalms. But I think it works, especially in Galatians. He says that Luther was always he was concerned to communicate what it meant, what theology was, and what it meant to be a theologian. Theologian then isn't what we think of now. Theologian, we think of, you know, Mark Genelet, you know, go through this this awful experience of earning a PhD, and then they become quote, the doctor of the church and, and able to sort of teach. Uh, a theologian then was anyone who thinks about God and recover that and bring that back. Anyone who thinks about God, anyone who lives life beneath, uh, anyone who lives life on life's terms, Luther would say, is a theologian. Because knowingly or unknowingly, we're trying to work those questions out. So according to Luther, what's his name? The, uh, the, the selfish gene guy, um, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, you know, one of the new atheists, as it were. He'd say he's totally a theologian. He's asking all the theological questions. You know, does God exist? Who is God? Who am I? How are we here? Where are we going? How do we know what we know? When will we know when we don't know what we don't know? All those sorts of things, pulling it right down. And so Luther, within that, and I extend that, I want to sort of put this put this out there, if I'm groping for a theme, this is probably one of the themes. Um, it is experience that makes you a theologian. Now, you've got to sort of couch that and think about that a little bit because uh, in our con current context, it wants to be taken to say it is experience that makes you a theologian. So, because my experience is X, you have to accept that and accept it theologically. So you have to accept it not just theologically, but to say that God wants this to be this way. Whatever it is. I'm not trying to pick a certain thing. He's trying to say this experience is a proof of authority. Experience authorizes, because experience is an author of theology, ergo God. And that's backwards. Luther's not saying that at all. It is experience that makes you a theologian. In what way? What are we experiencing? In the passive position, the vita passiva, the passive life, it is experience that makes you a theologian. It is not reading and writing that makes you a theologian. And here's the, here's the money quote. It is living and dying and being damned that makes you a theologian. So we're going to play with that. That's a very stark statement. He was writing on one of the Psalms in 1520, sort of a very fruitful year for Luther. It is living and dying and being damned that makes you a theologian. What in the world does he mean by that? And so we start to play that around. Theology, we remember, 
is what God does. It is his work when he encounters people. Whether that's Richard Dawkins, whether that's you, whether that's me, whether that's Martin Luther. Um, it, theology is what God does. So there's activity. Activity on God's part. Theology is what God does. It is his work as he encounters people. Again, Luther said, for God to speak is to do. Uh, the word is the deed. To speak is to do. And the word is the deed. And so the letter of Galatians, the word of God, to speak is to do. And the word is uh, the deed. It is the creator's work upon the creature, hence the chief organ being the ear, um, in which ways uh, each one of us, as we hear the word, as we experience the word being spoken to us, or put it even more actively, as the word does itself to us, assaults us, you might even say, uh, that experience is what makes us a theologian. Because the word assaults. The living, the dying, the being damned. This living experience is why he would say the subject of theology. This is the, I'm going to sort of stop this and we're going to get into the letter. The subject of theology is what? The sinning human and the justifying God. And that's the theme of Galatians. The sinning human and the justifying God. Um, I'll pause there. I know it's really sort of a lot of, a lot of big words, a lot of big ideas. Um, what is theology? What does it mean to be a theologian? Living, dying, being damned. The word is the deed. Some of that I know is very sort of abstract. I'm hoping to make that a bit more concrete. And I think the heat just got hotter in here, but um, maybe that's a sign. Well, any thoughts before I just kind of move in? I'm going to roll through Galatians and, and uh, give us a, a broad outline before we climb in and, uh, and do a little bit of text work and then come out a couple of stories and examples. So, um, as I mentioned, the letter follows a crisis. Soon after he left the church that he started, it hit a crisis. Some, some false teachers who he calls agitators or the troublers, the circumcision group, those who trouble you. He has lots of, lots of names for them. Uh, they come in soon after he leaves, and, uh, and he, they, they want to, it's very modern in this sense, they cast all sort of spurious doubts on them. It's very National Signing Day if you're a football fan and just did this, and you know Spurrier just leaves, and you know Muschamp comes in, is like, well, you know, I'm not saying anything bad about him, but da 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 da, and all that sort of dirty recruiting or whatever you want to call it. That was certainly going on. This new teaching that sort of came in, the circumcision group, um, because it was all about the question uh, to the Gentiles: Do we require the Gentiles to observe the Jewish customs, i.e., the law? And what does that mean? Um, and one of the foremost marks of obedience to the law would be the circumcision of a man. Um, I don't need to go into too much detail of what that is, but he plays that out a lot. And with those, some of those choice quotes, one of my favorites, um, I think it's in 5.12, he says, Look, for those of y'all who think circumcision is still great and necessary and good, I wish you just, if you're going to start it, don't be half about it. Just go ahead and cut the whole thing off. That's what he says. Go ahead and just emasculate yourselves. But the Greek is even more specific. It kind of just goes right in there. It's like, don't stop short. Go all the way. Just take it off. Just go. If you're going to do it, do it. Either or, not both and. So Paul's right in there. He gets really impassioned. But why do I call this class the sweetest comfort? Um, as Joe Gibbs was, was in staff meeting, and when, when the, he saw the title, he said, 
sweetest comforts. Not what I usually think of when I think of the book of Galatians, because he had in mind the masculation part, I think. Um, uh, uh, what is the sweetest comfort? How could this uh, experience of living and dying and being damned be comfortable, be strengthening? How could this be sweet? Because the confrontation of a sinner by the justifying God, the sinning human and the justifying God, the confrontation of a sinner when we've been undressed with our self-centered interests to realize who we are uh, uh, on the other side of that, but only on the other side of that crucifixion. And that's what we're going to look at today. I have been crucified with Christ, one of the most famous verses out of Paul. It's in Galatians, Galatians 2.20. It's our text. It's going to be part of our text today. Uh, that became pure comfort to me. Um, uh, the sweet comfort of, of the event, the experience of being justified. So with all this, um, the sinning human, uh, that being a given, um, well, not quite a given. How are we a sinning human? What does that mean? We are uh, adjudicated. We know ourselves. We are taught. We see in the mirror our need um, through the law. And so the law, theologically, comes right into play. And therefore, the works of the law, very important phrase, it's going to be there throughout the letter, so trying to sort of unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? Um, now, strictly speaking, of course, the works of the law, according to the Jewish tradition, because that's the context of the letter, do you need to go back and obey um, the, uh, the ceremonial laws, wear flacketries, those things, you know, wear your hair in certain ways, um, uh, you know, flacketries or those, those little mini scrolls, actually got really tiny print where you see the Torah written in there or something like that, or the Shema, love your Lord to God with all your heart, with all your soul. No, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That would be, um, present in those. If you ever want to see how this works in, uh, in action, um, great little book. Um, some of y'all probably read it. Alan Jacobs, he's done this with several of them. What is it called? The Year of Living Biblically. He took, uh, just total agnostic or just really, you'd say, just a secularist. And he, uh, and he, and he went through and he, 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 he reconciled what the accepted 726 laws that are present in the Old Testament are, because I think that's how many there are. He said, okay, for a year, I'm gonna, I'm gonna obey every one of them. I'm going to see what happens. So he didn't wear cotton with, you know, mixed fibers and you didn't eat shrimp and he had to stone, uh, you know, an adulterer and stuff like that. So he figured out how to do all this in Central Park. And parts of it really, really funny. Um, uh, anyway, so I, I don't know why I went that way, but to follow the works of the law is what Alan Jacobs tried to do. But what is that? I want to sort of unpack that. Um, to works, to, to justify, to be justified by the works of the law uh, is to to seek to justify ourselves to ourselves. To work to be justified by the works of the law, sort of looking at it from a broader perspective, is to try to justify ourselves to ourselves. As the beginning of, of the passage that we're going to look at today says, um, we ourselves were Jews by birth. And I heard Fitzsimmons Allison pick up something similar once. It's like, do you do you not know who I am? I was born in Charleston. <laughs> you know, I was a, I'm, a, I'm a Charlestonian by birth. Um, 
Uh, I'm a Jew by birth. I have the rights and privileges of all my bloodline and, and titles. I'm trying to talk like Fitz and Allison. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a fifth-generation Texan. I'm not only a son of the American Revolution, but I'm a son of the the, uh, the, the Texas, the, the the nation of Texas. Um, you know, doesn't that get me anything? Can I be justified? Do you not know who I am? Have you seen the back of my car? I have children, and they're very active. <laughs> And they're very successful. You know, you should you should accept me. I'm okay, right? Because look, or if you're like me, look at the back of my car. You know, aren't I justifying myself and sort of playing the real sort of you know, I'm, I'm unreadable card? You know, it's the same thing. Still justifying myself by a work, whether you're working to to tell everybody what you're doing or working by not telling everybody what to do, for all sorts of reasons. You know, we so often. Many of us are in a position where we want to look for somebody. And so where do we look? The Internet. And isn't it frustrating when they, they've scrubbed? They've scrubbed their presence from the Internet, you know, trying to look for a prospective employee or somebody that might you know, work alongside for something or another. I want to go look for a sermon to see. And you look and you're like, it takes a lot of work to not show up on the Internet these days. I searched for myself again on Friday thinking about this. And I was like, wow, what, how did I get looped around to that. I mean, do that sometimes. Search yourself on Google or Google Images and see what pops up. It's really interesting how the algorithm goes. But when that's not there, that's a work. Seeking to make myself right to myself by not letting myself show up on the internet at all or totally, i.e. all of Facebook. Um, works of the law. Seeking to justify yourself. Do you not know who I am? Let me tell you about it. Let me count the ways. Look at my car, look at my Facebook, look at, look at my children, look at my pets, look at my dogs, look at all the different ways that I try to make life mean something to me. Where I belong, to whom I belong, clubs, memberships, um, lack thereof, whatever it is. All of that gets blown up in our face when we start to think about our standing, because that's what the word means, justify, our standing before God where we are stripped down as the sinning human and the justifying God. A primary theme where then uh, theology, theology is what God does. And what does God do? Um, we encounter God living and dying and being damned. Um, thanks be to God, Easter is real. And after the living and the dying and being damned, then, in the sweet comfort, which is the gospel, and it's all over the place in Galatians, uh, we find that this faith, which we now have, is livy, living, busy, and active. Uh, we find ourselves not idle, not, not lazy, not complacent at all, um, but very, very plugged in. So that's kind of a, a broad purview of... Uh, of some of the language that I'm going to be using, because um, it's, it's, it's its language. Works of the law, justification, um, death, life. It is a book of contrast. That's definitely Paul's sort of literary technique here. Deeds of the flesh versus fruit of the spirit. Life versus death. Light versus dark. Um, uh, the, 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 the law, the gospel. Um, he wants to set it up. It's a very either-or book, not a both hand, um, which I think is helpful because it becomes very, very clear as things get sort of thrust to the poles. It's hard to find moderation in this book. So any thoughts?
then let's get into the book. Um, uh, um, I'm not even going to go too far with what happened before. Paul does do a short greeting. He redresses the the church a little bit, um, talks about his own conversion just to sort of uh, justify himself. uh, as having the rights of the apostle of an apostle because he wasn't one of the twelve apostles who walked with Jesus, but he had the experience on the Damascus Road, which I think he has in mind when he um, has this death life piece. But we'll come to that. And then um, uh, he talks about a clash with Peter of all things, which we also read about in Acts 15. Um, it's included for 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 all the world to see how the two great leaders of the church weren't in agreement on on this issue. So that's the background. And then we pick it up in Galatians 2.15. Some people have a Bible on their phones. You want to read ahead, but you don't have to. Um, six verses. Galatians 2.15. Some of which I bet you've heard. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I'm going to reread it and kind of break it down in a minute. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Um, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It is uh, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let me just break that down. I want to read it once since it was short, just to get some of the, the cadence. It's sometimes hard to hear. Um, for we ourselves were Jews by birth. I talked about earlier. He's anticipating the argument in your head. But I'm a Jew. I should already have the privileges. Remember, I'm a a son of the promise. Remember, I I have membership and all the privileges afforded therein. Because that's going to be a big deal to him. um, That we all, men and women, are counted as sons of God. Why is that important that men and women are counted as sons of God? Because they're, not totally unlike here, but they're radically to the firstborn son everything went the firstborn son was the heir of the entire throne of the heir of the entire kingdom the heir of the entire estate and so that's just one aspect of the radical nature of the gospel that he wants to sort of highlight here later is that we will all be counted as sons as the firstborn son and be heirs of the kingdom not as um uh, well, anyway, so we'll put that out. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, and so we have also believed. And so, justified, our standing before God, our standing before ourselves and before others, is not counted on anything that we do. Our activities, our bloodline, or uh, uh, what we drive, what we eat, what we wear. Have you seen my shoes? Um, anything uh, except through Christ Jesus. The faith belief um, that comes back and forth. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, 
no one will be justified. So he wants to pull all this down and realize the dead end that as the human heart seeks to do this, this is an interpolation, we, we can't not not try to do the works of the law to make ourselves righteous um, because there's no making, it's doing. Remember, uh, the subject theology is the sinning human and the justifying God. I don't do anything to make myself um, acceptable, either to God or to myself. Uh, as many have said, the only thing I bring to this equation is my own sin. The only thing I bring to the equation is my, uh, 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 my weakness, my sinfulness, my brokenness, my need. Um, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Saying, look, if all this is so true, if Christ is, is all that great, and Christ alone, through faith alone, if all that's there, but I still find myself sinning, well, what is that? What, what, what good is this? Shouldn't I trust the law a little bit? Shouldn't I do something? Because otherwise you're making Christ a servant of, of sin, an agent of sin. Are you making Christ say yes to something, which is, is bad? And he wants to say, by no means, certainly not. For if I rebuild, if I bring back into my life what I've already torn down, the, the, the reliance on the law, um, I prove myself to be a transgressor, a lawbreaker. For it is not I, and then very importantly, he gets into uh, the place where I'm going to sort of slow down. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So a few places I want to sort of think about that and then we'll stop. Um, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. So I was thinking about this. This is where I spent most of my, my thought on Friday, thinking about this passage. And three things came to mind. The first, um, Paul, his own experience. Because in chapter 1, he really went into his autobiography a lot. Um, and we think about his conversion. What happened to Paul when he was converted? What's the big sort of operating event that we remember? I remember. He was blinded. That's right. It's a tomb-like experience to Paul. He's walking along. Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul, the apostle. Um, and how does it happen? Holy Spirit comes down. More than that, the, uh, the, the risen Lord comes down and knocks him off his horse, of course we know, on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? Who are you, masked man? Uh, and he's blinded. Scales, he would say, come over his eyes. Can't see a thing. Stone dark. Entombed. Dead. Basically, a dead man walking. This is a resonant theme in Paul. I never connected that. I think there's something here that Paul's experience of that blindedness, of that darkness, of that deep. If you've ever been in a cave, I was in Scouts. We went into a cave in Arkansas once. I got to do this a few times at Sewanee as well. There's a, a heaviness to a complete and utter darkness. If you've ever been sort of a mile under and a mile in, uh, and then you turn out the flashlights, it's not like, you know, walking around your house at three. It, it, you can feel it. There's a palpability to it where it's very disorienting. You, I'm standing there, or it might be that I'm kneeling, and you put your hand in front of your face, and it actually has enough head games. I remember this when I was 20. We were lost at Sewanee because 
hey, he's a sophomore. He must know what he's doing. So I was like, well, that's stupid. Um, it was Hank, by the way. So, um, Frank knows him. Ah, oh, guys, I don't know where we are. I'll be right back. Holy cow. You know, there we are. Um, uh, a mile under and a mile down in wet cave. And uh, we turn off the flashlights. And you don't really know if I'm upside down, right side up. I mean, it must be like what pilots describe when they're flying only by instruments in a, in a storm and they don't know what's going on. That sort of disorientation, palpable heaviness of dark. And Paul was given that just like that, this entombed experience, um, not unlike Christ's experience in the tomb on Saturday. For through the law, extrapolating a little bit, through my life, hey, you know me, I'm Saul. Remember the Jew of the Jew to the Pharisees, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the best of them all, the tribe of Benjamin. I've got it all going. Through the law, everything that I put on my car, all the clothes that I wore, all the places that I, I, uh, I highlighted to myself and to others to make my life have meaning, to make my life bearable, to give me a, something to wake up for every morning, to pull me out of bed. Through all that, darkness. That's what it got me. Paul would say, I just, it got me nothing except the experience of living and dying and being damned. Tomb-like in his death. Through the law, I died. Through the law, I died to the Lord. I have been crucified with Christ. And he would say in Romans, um, do you not know that those of us who have been crucified with Christ and so share in his death will also share in resurrection? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So then a second thought I had, the prodigal son, or better, the wayward son and the prodigal father. Um, a very low bar of repentance, the first one. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Just give me all your stuff. Um, I don't want you. I want your things. So the dad, in his forbearance, says, okay, here, here's half my kingdom, because the elder son is going to have it as well. And he goes off to Vegas and he, and he, and he squanders it, um, wild living and women. Uh, but of course it runs out. And where does he come to? A Jew. A Jewish boy eating with pigs. You know, slopping pig slop. Eating pig slop. Um, and he comes to. We can call that repentance, but it's a pretty low repentance. What is he saying? He's like, I can do better than this. Look, I can do they're, they're, My dad's a rich man. He's got hirelings. He's got servants that are doing better than I'm doing. At least I can go back. I can grovel. And he kind of pulled this little thing. That's not really a, a very good repentance, isn't it? That's just sort of a very low bar. But he goes back. And what happens? Remember he had his little speech planned and all that stuff? It's the last thing we hear from the wayward son. He doesn't say anything else the rest of the story. Because his father, who saw him from far off, pulled up his skirts and he ran to meet him. And he says... There he is. The son of mine who was dead is now alive. The son of mine who was lost, he is now found. Death to life, lost to find, you know, light from dark. Uh, and that became a very high repentance. This new affection which was created in the, in, the, uh, in the wayward son. Not, I can do better than this, but now something which Paul will later say becomes a, uh, a faith, no, a love which a faith which is very active in love, where the heart was not just, I need to, I need to, I need to eat. 
Um, but what can I do? How can I die? How can I give my life in the service of my father, my mother, my wife, my son, my child, the world, my brothers? Um, everything changed for me. This experience of living and dying and being damned as the sinning human and the justifying God uh, speaks and does. And then the last one, we'll end with this, Johnny Cash, you know, the man in black who I looked, Ron's in here. Ron did this great class a few years ago. It's probably still on the web, I guess, on Johnny Cash, like two or three weeks. And I looked for my copy. Johnny Cash wrote a book. We wrote several, but he wrote a book on, as the man in black, and he titled it, The Man in White, on the Apostle Paul, sort of a fictitious account. Now, I looked for it because what I wanted to do, but I must have given it away or something. I couldn't find it to, uh, to give his description of what it was like to be blind for those days. Um, but instead, I pulled out his autobiography. And, uh, and Johnny Cash in 1967, a lot of y'all will know this story. I know the story of a cave, in fact, um, which is, uh, of course, a great metaphor for a tomb. Johnny Cash hasn't eaten in several days. Uh, the past several months, he's missed all these, these concerts. He's missed more concerts than he's made because he's strung out on drugs, primarily amphetamines. He's down to 155 pounds from a six-foot, one-inch frame, just a waif. Uh, and he says, this is it. I, I can't do this anymore. And he has this plan, this amphetamine-stoked, um, malnourished plan, which seems totally rational to somebody in that. And I get it. He says, I can do better than this. I'm going to go to Nickajack Cave. I'm going to crawl in as far as I can, and I'm never going to come out. I'm just going to crawl in and get irretrievably lost and die. And so this is Cash's attempt at suicide. Um, and so he says, I knew what to do. I'd go to Nickajack Cave on the Tennessee River just north of Chattanooga and let God take me from this earth and put me wherever he puts people like me. You can't go to Nickajack Cave anymore. The Army Corps of Engineers put a dam in, which closed off the entrance we used. It was an amazing place, an opening 150 feet wide and 50 feet high into a system of caves, some of them bigger than two or three football stadiums, that ran into the mountains all the way down into Alabama. I'd been there before with friends, Bob Johnson once, Hank Williams Jr. another time, exploring and looking for old Civil War and Indian artifacts. Andrew Jackson and his army had slaughtered the Nickajack Indians there, men, women, and children, and soldiers from both sides of the war between the states had taken shelter in the caves at various times during the conflict. The remains of the dead among them were joined by the bones of many spelunkers and amateur adventurers who'd lost their lives in the caves over the years, usually losing their way. It was my hope and intention to join that company. If I'd crawled in far enough, I thought, I'd be able to find my way back out, and nobody would be able to locate me until I was dead, if indeed they ever could. The dam would be coming in soon. What is theology? The experience of living and dying and being damned. He's being made, you would say, into a theologian. I parked my Jeep and started crawling. And I crawled and crawled and crawled until, after two or three hours, the batteries in my flashlight wore out and I lay down to die in total darkness. The absolute lack of light was appropriate, a tomb. For in that moment, I was as far from God as I'd ever been, he thinks. My separation from him, the deepest and most ravaging of the various kinds of loneliness I'd ever felt over the years, it finally seemed complete. It wasn't. I thought I'd left him, but he hadn't left me. I felt something very powerful start to happen to me, a sensation of utter peace, clarity, sobriety. I didn't believe it at first. I couldn't understand it. How, after being awake for so long and driving my body so hard, 
and taking so many pills, dozens of them, scores, even hundreds, could I possibly feel all right? The feeling persisted, though, and then my mind started focusing on God. He didn't speak to me. He never has, and I'll be very surprised if he ever does. But I do believe that at times he has put feelings in my heart, the new affection, and even ideas in my head. There in Nickajack Cave, I became conscious of a very clear, simple idea. I was not in charge of my destiny. I had been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I was not in charge of my destiny. I was not in charge of my own death. I was going to die at God's time, not mine. I hadn't prayed over my decision to seek death in the cave, but that hadn't stopped God from intervening. I struggled being defeated by the practicalities of the matter. There I was, after all, in total darkness, with no idea which way was up, down, in, or out of that incredible complexity of passages and chambers. How could I escape the death I'd willed? No answer came, but an urging did. I had to move. And so I did. I started crawling in whatever direction suggested itself, feeling ahead with my hands to guard against plunging over some precipice, just moving slowly and calmly, crab-like. I have no idea how long it took, but at a certain point I felt a breath of wind on my back, and I knew that wherever that breeze was blowing from, that was the way out. I followed it till I began to see the light, just like Paul, and I finally saw the opening of the cave. And when I walked out, June, June Cash, June Carter Cash, June was there with a basket of food and drink and my mother. I was confused. I thought she was in California. I was right. She had been. I knew there was something wrong, she said, and I had to come and find you. It's very biblical. It's here in Galatians 2. He pulls on the prodigal son, except June Carter is the prodigal father, wasting this prodigious amount of love, um, his responsiveness to, uh, to the experience of living and dying and being damned. It is not even my death to die, he would say, uh, for I have been crucified. I'm already a dead man, a dead man walking who now can't even, because a dead man has no power, uh, I cannot take my own life from me, his physical life, certainly not his spiritual, because another had something else in mind. That's the gospel that Paul fights so strongly against when these agitators, these disturbers, these troublers come in and try to put something back and say it's Christ and something else. And Paul's like, there is nothing else. It is Christ alone. And that's going to be his, his whole theme in Galatians. We cannot add to what God has already done because we are dead. We have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer we, you, me, who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, that will be our theme. Um, this union, this amazing union, uh, which is very invasive. Um, we're thinking about our trees right now. I am. And this mistletoe. I never knew about mistletoe. It's this parasite that just gets in there and it's just killing it. And I think we're dead. Probably calling Kelly soon. Um, Maybe would love. <laughs> um, uh, we, 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 can't, we can't tell the tree to live. Um, it's something else. And that's going to be the gospel that uh, Paul very strongly, very forcefully, uh, very polary uh, that's a word, just made it up, um, wants to defend. So let me pray. Lord, take this uh, this time, use it to your end, not mine. Um, correct me where I'm wrong. And Lord, come to us uh, in whatever way you need to. 
and uh, redress us and create in us clean hearts, renewed spirits, um, for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.